Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find me throughout the week at the Facebook page, and you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederata.com. And I did actually post a couple of things this morning on Facebook. Um, unfortunately, it's so long ago at this point that I don't remember exactly what they were, um, but they must have been interesting. <laughs> um so uh, it is time this week for our biannual fun drive. And if you've been listening all week, I apologize, but we appreciate you greatly. Um, and so I've been doing this show on Valley Free Radio for several years now, and it continues to be one of the highlights of my week. But I would not be able to do it without the support of our listeners. VFR is truly an all-volunteer run station, and it is supported fully through donations from our listening community. Now, the easiest way to donate if you enjoy Valley Free Radio and want it to continue to broadcast is to go to valleyfreeradio.org slash donate. You can even leave a note that you're supporting this show if you like. Now, while we do have a few underwriters, we don't get any money from municipal or other institutional sources. Really, the annual, the biannual fund drive is how we keep the lights on, keep broadcasting, make sure that our equipment is able to function properly, um, make upgrades where we can to improve the sound quality and the ability for programmers to use the equipment. And um, we run on a shoestring budget. And so we are basically doing as much as we can with as little as we can because we don't want to um, overburden anyone. Now, this uh, particular fun drive, we are once again generously being provided with a matching gift from the estate of David S. Dow, which means that for every individual donor, we will get a matching gift of $10. And if we reach 103 unique donors, which I believe we are already close to, so if you want to help push us over the edge, that would be great, uh, we will be granted an extra $1,000. And so this means that even if you can only afford a dollar or two, your donation will not only be multiplied, but will also help us towards our goal of reaching that 103 donors. Now, again, the easiest way to donate is at valleyfreeradio.org slash donate. Okay, so now that that's out of the way, let's get into tonight's stories. And since this is kind of a bit like sweeps week, so to say, um, I'm actually going to start out by talking about an aspect of Monsanto slash bear, uh, that bear of a conglomerate, uh, if I might make a bad pun, that I completely concede is amoral and bad for farmers and consumers alike. So a recent decision in Brazil ruled in favor of Monsanto that farmers cannot retain seeds and replant them without paying additional royalties to the company. Monsanto argues that the seeds are its intellectual property and thus cannot be reused without additional payment. 
And so in Brazil, Monsanto charges 2% royalties on farmers' sales of soybeans grown from Monsanto's Roundup Ready seeds. Now, this is considered an industry standard. That's not what they're um, arguing about. What they're arguing about is that it then charges an additional 3% royalty if soybeans are grown from saved seeds. Of course, presumably this is to make up for the loss of the actual price value of new seeds. So that extra 1% because you didn't buy the seeds from them uh, over um, and above. Now, while this will most likely be appealed to the Brazilian Supreme Court, it follows decisions in the United States and Canada that have upheld Monsanto's patent rights. Now, the royalties in question are estimated to be some 7.7 billion U.S. dollars. So it's a pretty big uh, case, and these farmers feel like they're really getting a raw deal. I can't stand it anymore, seeing those Monsanto people showing up at the grain elevator and behaving as if they own everything, one grain cooperative manager told the Brazilian Congress during a special commission on agriculture back in December 2017, according to Karine Pachard, an anthropologist and research associate at the Graduate Institute of International and Developmental Studies in Geneva, Switzerland, who's been following this uh, story. The suit was first filed in 2009. It was filed by Brazilian farmers unions who argued that Monsanto's royalty collection system is arbitrary, illegal, and abusive. And I would be frankly shocked if that wasn't all true. Um, maybe not. I, I am not going to go on record as saying the illegal, but arbitrary and abusive, probably. Um <laughs> They argued that Monsanto's assertion that their intellectual property rights extend over the farmer's own production violated their rights to save seeds under Brazil's Plant Variety Protection Act. Now, they were actually handed a victory initially in April of 2012, but Monsanto had that ruling overturned on appeal. The Farmers' Union appeal of this overturning was this latest exchange that was just settled. Monsanto is amoral, Luis Fernando Benica, a soybean producer and litigant in the class action suit, told Pichard in January of 2017. It will do anything for profits. Um, and as my friend uh, Sue Timberlake would agree, that is part of the problem is that uh, corporations are amoral. I mean, they are generally amoral as a general practice. Um, and unfortunately, you know, some, some companies do strive to be less, to be more moral, but most companies are amoral. And when it comes to things like this, that can be really problematic. Now, the real issue is whether or not the intellectual property contained within the Monsanto seed extends to the product of the actual plant, which is usually covered under laws like Brazil's Plant Variety Protection Act. Now, in the U.S. and Canada, and now seemingly in Brazil, courts have ruled that the genetically engineered DNA sequences cannot be separated from the rest of the plant, and therefore, while there are competing, um, while there are competing um, laws that might affect them, then uh, the courts have ruled that the patent holders' rights should be upheld over the rights of farmers. 
Now, the fight is not yet over. Uh, Neri Perrin, uh, representing the Farmers Union, says that the ruling disregards Brazil's international commitment to guarantee farmers' rights. And so they will be appealing it, uh, uh, as I said earlier, probably to the Supreme Court. Now, uh, that is not the only lawsuit that uh, Monsanto is dealing with in Brazil. Uh, Brazilian soybean farmers also have a separate lawsuit currently challenging the validity of the company's patent on soybeans grown from second-generation seeds. Now, this is different from um, saved seeds. Second-generation seeds are seeds that are from a second generation of Monsanto creating um, um genetically modified seeds. And so basically, the farmers argue that the patent for the Intacta uh, RR2 Pro Seeds, so Roundup Ready 2, um, is invalid because it doesn't contain any real technological advances over what I assume would have been the Intacta RR Pro initially. So that's a really interesting argument, is that they're saying that, well, these second generation seeds, they don't have anything that's um, substantially different to make them worth having a patent on. And so a Brasilia appeals court required Monsanto to put the monies from the plaintiff's royalties into escrow earlier this year, pending a decision. Though uh, there are several reports that suggest that so far, uh, Monsanto has only deposited a fraction of the total of what the plaintiff's royalties would be. Um, and so farmers in the state of Mato Grosso have been joined by farmers from 10 other states in the lawsuit. Now, currently, Monsanto's patent lasts through October of 2022. And so... They are also facing issues in India. And so in India, there is an active lawsuit concerning Monsanto's patent for a cotton variety engineered to be insect resistant, though a ruling in January upheld the patent rights until the case is re-adjudicated. Now, one of the big things I want to talk about here, though, is, and something that I'm constantly trying to remind people um, on the internet and in other places, none of this has to do with whether or not genetically engineered plants are safe or, or effective. It's important to be able to separate the corporate capitalistic greed of these corporations that create genetically engineered seeds and the actual science behind those modifications. And I think people spend too much time conflating the two. The science it's very firm that there is no current knowledge of any substantial harm from genetically engineered plants that are currently on the market. Now, I cannot guarantee that there won't be longitudinal studies that happen in 50 years that say, well, if you look at a cumulative 50-year um, consumption rate, then there's some sort of thing that you can point out. We don't have that data yet. But we do have data from 20 or 30 years for some of these crops like soybeans and corn that do not show any reason to be concerned about uh, genetically engineered seeds versus seeds that are quote unquote uh, organic um, or quote unquote more conventional. Um, because one of the things that I always think is funny is one of the uh, ways in which seeds can be um, hybridized or um, can be um, created into new species that nobody ever talks about is irradiation. <laughs> um, and I just always think that's really interesting because uh, irradiating seeds 
leads to uh, novel uh, mutations, whereas genetic engineering is to make specific uh, mutations in order to achieve specific goals. Um, And so I just think the whole thing is very fascinating. But the important thing is that we have to be able to separate that science from the capitalistic greed of corporations. I'm 100% on board with the fact that capitalistic greed is terrible and we should do something about it. But I'm 100% not on board on saying that because this technology is used by greedy corporations that it isn't that it is therefore inherently evil. Um, and I think that people really need to take a step back and think about that. And even beyond that, the idea of patents and corporate control is actually more complicated than many people think. The ruling in India was actually celebrated by one of India's main farmers associations, the Shikari Sanghata, Sanghatana. We were fighting for this, says Dr. C.D. Mayi, former director of the Central Institute for Cotton Research and president of the board of directors of the South Asia Biotechnology Center. If we want this country to develop and have a research mode, we need to have patents. If we don't allow such patents, there won't be any research. Now, of course, we can make an anti-capitalist argument about that, but in our current system, they're right. That's how people are persuaded to do this research is because they will then have a patent that they can make money off their creation for a certain amount of time. That's just how our system works. And of course, I know that some people will say that we shouldn't be using such technology at all. That is definitely a thing that people say, that we should return to all organic farming. Well, a new publish, the new paper published in Nature Communications looked at the outcome of what would happen if all of the agricultural production of England and Wales was switched to organic. They found that this would lead to an overall increase in greenhouse gas emissions. Now, the reasons are pretty straightforward. Organics, no matter how much supporters want to suggest otherwise, simply cannot produce yields equivalent to conventional farming. Therefore, any grain, any gains would be offset by the need to either convert more land to farmland or to input food, import food from other nations. But This isn't meant to discourage those who want to farm organically. The paper concludes that, Ultimately, it is unlikely that there exists any single optimal approach to achieving environmentally sustainable food production. Therefore, context-specific evaluations are required to reveal the extent to which organic systems can contribute alongside other approaches to multi-objective and internationally binding sustainability targets. And this is what farmers say. It's what they've been arguing for years. It's that you can't just use one approach. You have to trust the farmers to know what's best for their land. If you want to grow organic food, lots of people in the valley grow organic food and it's delicious. And I've bought it at farmer's markets. And I've also bought things that use other kinds of technology. You know, I buy conventional. I buy... um, I forget what the um, the pest control, I forget what the actual term for it is, but, you know, when, that they use, you know, ladybugs and things like that, but they also use, you know, some fertilizer and things. And of course, organics use fertilizer. That's one of those things that people always say, oh, they don't use anything. It's like, yes, they do. They just use quote unquote natural ones. Um, 
And so I think that that uh, villainizing, uh, demonizing, um, you know, conventionals is just silly because we cannot feed all of the people that we have simply on organics. We can't. But if you want to personally choose to eat only organic, that's fine. Go ahead. But stop trying to force everyone else to do that. That is not something that is okay. So, um, yeah, <laughs> now that I've soapboxed a bit, <laughs> I want to remind you <laughs> that uh, we are listening, you are listening to WXOJLP 103.3 FM uh, Valley Free Radio in Northampton, Massachusetts. And um, if you would like to keep us able to uh, express our opinions uh, on this station, you can help out by donating. It is our pledge week, and um, you can donate by going to valleyfreeradio.org slash donate. And again, uh, for every unique donor, we will get an extra $10. And if we make it to 103 or more unique donors, we will get an extra $1,000 from the estate of David S. Dow. Um, it's such a wonderful opportunity. Please help us um, during this time. And we, everything that we do is uh, funded by our listeners. Okay. So we've been talking about sort of various sorts of conflict and foodstuffs. And so we're going to move on now and we're going to talk about something a uh, little bit further back in time. And we're going to discuss the first workers sit down strike in Egypt, which happens to be the first recorded in the world. Now, before we get started on this, there are Egyptian names in this story, and I am not going to pronounce them properly. Um, I apologize. I'm going to do my best. <laughs> okay. So a description of the strike is recorded in the Judicial Papyrus of Turin, Verso 2. And this is a papyrus that was written in hieratic, which is a type of, um, it's a type of hieroglyphic, but it's a little bit more close to actual, like, um, lang actual um, alphabet. And so it's now in the Egyptian Museum in Turin, Italy. And so the strike began in 1159 BCE when skilled laborers who were working at Set Ma'at, now known as Deir el Medina, the village for those working on the Valley of the Kings, had their food rations arrive almost a month late. The papyrus notes that on the first day of the strike, the scribe, Amenakate personally delivered a formal complaint about this situation to the temple of Horemheb, which was part of the larger administrative complex of, Medi of Medinet Habu. Now, Amenakate negotiated with local officials for the distribution of grain, but this was only a stopgap effort. And so unfortunately, there were actually bigger things going on here. So the reason the rations had been late was that there had been a breakdown of the ability for the kingdom to distribute grain. Previously to this particular period, the Sea People, a confederation of, frankly, marauders, uh, if you believe the Egyptians, um, from the Mediterranean area, were brought in by the Libyan Arabs 
empire to harry the Egyptians. And so they invaded from the north and the Egyptians were able to finally push them back, but they did a lot of damage. Um, they were very typical marauders. It was very much um, slash and burn, um, Sherman-esque uh, warfare by the sea people. And so this, is, of course, had depleted the resources of the empire, especially that of their grain stores, because um, you have to feed soldiers. And if you have soldiers out in the field, those people are not in uh out in the field of battle, they're not in the fields growing wheat. And so in addition, the country was also gearing up for the 30-year jubilee of Ramses III. So there were a lot more people out there working and supposedly needing to have rations. Now, the workers' rations would be delayed again and again until the last straw. Workers had been waiting another 18 days for rations, and at this point they decided to strike. They marched to the rear of the temple of Menkepheri, uh, or Tutmos III, and sat down. They then proceeded to the temple of Wesermastre Setepentre, or Ramses II, where they were met by a group of officials who said that they would go to the mayor of Thebes, who had access to the granaries. The workers said to them, according to the papyrus again, the prospect of hunger and thirst has driven us to this. There is no clothing, there is no ointment, um, which is, of course, significant in a hot, dry climate. There is no food, which, uh, sorry, there is no fish, which would have been a main source of protein. There are no vegetables. Send to Pharaoh, our good Lord, about it, and send to the vizier, our superior, that we might be supplied with provisions." Now, one of the interesting sort of asides in this uh, papyrus is that the chief of police, actually, um, uh, Mentmos, actually sided with the strikers and was basically like, yeah, you guys should be upset about this. Like, you should go and you should stay striking. And like, definitely, this is a good thing because you should definitely be paid. Um, and so that's really funny. Like, the chief of police is like, yep, nope, I totally agree with you. <laughs> um so on that day, they were actually given provisions, uh, though those provisions were now 21 days late. And so the gang at that point was given uh, for each of the sides. So in this time, um, workforces were split into two sections, with each uh, having its own hierarchy and generally working on either the left or right sides of the building. And so there would be a left and a right. And so for each of the two teams, left and right, for the foreman, seven and a half sacks of grain were given. For the scribe, three and three-fourths sacks. And for the eight workmen, each received four sacks. Now, the delays continued, with the vizier coming next and telling the workers that the granaries were empty. Now, this is almost certainly partially due to corruption, uh, because there were a lot of people there at this point. Um, all of these, um, all of the um, temples and uh, mortuary buildings that they were occupying all had people in them. And so I don't think that we usually think about this uh, very often, but all of those temples in sort of the height of the Egyptian empire would have been filled with priests and scribes for every single one because part of Egyptian religion was to continuously 
be feeding the soul of the deceased and remembering them and continuing to say prayers for them. And so they would actually have people in these mortuaries continuously doing religious rites. And so there were a lot of people there. And uh, as we know from a lot of Egyptian history, uh, priests were not necessarily the uh, most honest and uh, trustworthy of uh, the citizenry. And so probably a lot of them were eating extra grain rations. Um, but, you know, it this is this is what was happening. Uh, but the vizier said that he had found a half ration for them. So that was another day uh, that they were able to kind of uh, eat sort of and not really do anything uh, good. Now, the last thing in the papyrus uh, that mentions the papyrus, because of course, these are always fragmented, is that the mayor of Thebes uh, announced that he was sending the gardener, many a fur, of the chief overseer of cattle to say to them, see, I'll give you these 50 sacks of emmer for provisions until Pharaoh gives you a ration. Now, presumably the strike was resolved, given the fact that we have a wealth of finished buildings from the reign of Ramses III, and these really were the uh, most skilled workers. They were the highest paid, most well-respected artisans in the country. And so it shows not only the cracks in the empire, if they were not being properly paid, um, but it shows this sort of idea of... Um, you know, this is the beginning of the idea of sort of workers' rights. And so Set Ma'at was on the edge of the desert and as such relied on government rations to keep the workers healthy and able to work. And what's really cool from a sort of labor perspective, labor history perspective, is that by the end of the strike, the workers were no longer chanting about being hungry. They were talking about the injustice of it all. We have gone on strike not from hunger, but because we have a serious accusation to make. Bad things have been done in this place of Pharaoh. And I think that that's just like a really, really cool statement. Um, and it's really interesting to see these people from so long ago have such modern uh, problems. And so... Obviously, there aren't any mentions in the official records of the government concerning this or other strikes. Um, that papyrus is actually most likely written by that scribe, um, and we just happen to find it at the site of uh, Set Ma'at. And so we know, though, that other workers did strike later on. And so this was definitely the turning point for the workers, which allowed others to feel that they could assert their rights in later periods, which is very cool. Okay, so speaking of uh, <laughs> royalties and rations and all of that, uh, we do need your help to keep this radio station broadcasting. Uh, we count on your dollars rather than sacks of grains, uh, but everyone helps. Um, and so valleyfreeradio.org slash donate. Uh, and do remember, again, that each unique donor uh, will have $10 added to their donation and 103 will get us an extra thousand um, from the estate of David S. Dow. And um, I always like to remind people that, um, you know, I knew Dave, David, and David was, 
he was a friend of mine and he cared about this station. And what he really cared about was that he loved that people he knew and people he didn't really know found joy having the ability to speak their mind in a place that is rather unique in a lot of ways. Um, There aren't a lot of places like this where people can come in and talk to other people and um, he is deeply missed. And so I hope you can help us in honoring his memory this week. And so all of the money that we raise is used for expenses and upgrades. We don't have any paid employees. Everything goes to operational costs and to keep up with technology in order to give you the best listening experience we can. And if you're a longtime listener, uh, you'll know that beyond science reporting, I also like to sprinkle in feminism and anti-capitalism. And so we've already talked about anti-capitalism tonight. So when we return from the break, we are going to switch gears and talk about scientific feminism or feminism dealing with science um, in, you know, a broad way. (laughs) All right. So please do stay tuned uh, while we play some PSAs and show promos to make the FCC happy. And I'll be right back. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Hey everyone, DJ Man of Nowhere here. Tune in to our show Arts Electronica, dedicated to downtempo, ambient, electronic and house music, but also techno and trance with a hint of progressive and deep house, dubstep and experimental. We love all the music wizards here that bring to life their poetry throughout their sound spaces, soundscapes and sound sculptures. Arts Electronica goes live on Saturdays at midnight to 2 a.m. Sunday morning. Check us out. I'm so glad we left that stupid party. No joke. Hey, baby, are you an overdue library book? Because you got fine written all over you. Oh, barf. <laughs> what about that girl with the hoop earrings? Ridiculous. When she was dancing... Megan, I'm... look out. Look out! <gasps> uh, oh. oh, my oh. God. Becky. Becky, are you okay? My arm. I think it's broken. Can you bend it? It's already bent. In the wrong direction. I can't believe this. I'm so sorry. I only had a few drinks. I was just buzzed. Really? Just buzzed? Yeah, I swear. Well, in that case, my arm is fine. Ah, that's better. You're really okay? You're serious, Becky? No, genius. I'm not serious. Ow! My arm, it hurts. Buzzed driving. Maybe we should stop acting like it's no big deal. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Transportation, the Ad Council, and this station. Drum and bass with DJ Fife is on 8 o'clock on Saturday night. We roll from 8 o'clock to 10 o'clock on the Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, or online at valleyfreeradio.org. Join the 8 o'clock Drum and Bass Association by listening to Drum and Bass with DJ Fife, 8 to 10 Saturday nights. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. 
We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton. So come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old the for media flu. media is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Sure. Humans can be a little weird at times, but take it from me, I'm a dog. And a person is about the best thing that can happen to a shelter pet. So if you want to learn how you can be that person, get down to your local pet shelter or visit the shelterpetproject.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Aquí habla Marta Martinez, acupunturista de Stay in Touch. Está oyendo a Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, Northampton. The Lily Library is filled with adventure and wonder for kids and adults of all ages. Lily Library in downtown Florence lends books and movies to everyone. They offer free parking, free Wi-Fi, and two-hour sessions on Internet-connected computers. They also offer extensive programs for children, including story hours, clubs, and activities for teens, as well as adult programs. The library is open Tuesday and Thursday evenings, Saturdays and Sundays. Find out more at lilylibrary.org. Okay, we are back, and we are going to talk about some fantastic young women. For the first time, young women won all five top prizes at the Broadcom Masters STEM competition, which is America's premier science and engineering competition for middle school students. And so in this case, Masters stands for Math Applied Science Technology and Engineering for Rising Stars. It's pretty cool. And so the top prize went to 14-year-old Elena Gassler with 14-year-olds, I believe they're all 14, uh, Rachel Burgi, Cider Claire, Alexis McAvoy, and Lauren Ijaga. I, again, apologized for names are very hard, <laughs> uh, rounding out the top of the field. With so many challenges in our world, Elena and her fellow Broadcom Masters finalists make me optimistic, says Maya Ajmera, president and CEO of the Society for Science and the Public, which runs the competition. I am proud to lead an organization that is inspiring so many young people, especially girls, to continue to innovate. And so there were 30 finalists, including 18 girls and 12 boys this year, from an initial pool of 2,348 applicants, all having scored in the top percent for their participation in science fairs affiliated with the society. Elaine Gassler's project, for which she won the $25,000 Samuli Foundation Prize, was working to remove blind spots from vehicles. She designed a mount for a webcam that can be placed on the passenger side A-pillar, 
and 3D printed a part that allows a projector to display the image at close range inside of the car. She's actually already working on the next generation, which will have an LCD screen, which is easier to see in the daylight. There's so many car accidents and injuries and deaths that could have been prevented, she says. Since we can't take the pillar out of cars, I decided to get rid of it without getting rid of it, which is pretty cool. Rachel Berge's project involved invasive insects. She won the $10,000 Lemelson Award for an invention that shows a promising solution to a real-world problem. She devised a new kind of trap for the spotted lanternfly. Thousands of them have invaded my family's maple trees, she says. And it's not only her family's maple trees. It's estimated that the invasive bugs have threatened over $18 billion worth of agricultural crops in Pennsylvania alone. Now, the conventional traps in use use sticky tape, but these require frequent replacement and tend to also capture helpful insects and even birds. And so she devised a trap made of a tinfoil dome with a tunnel leading to insect netting. She found that this trap caught 103% more spotted lanternflies and 94% less incidental species than the tape. Sidor Claire's work netted her the $10,000 Marconi Samuli Award for Innovation. Her project focuses on the prospect of settlements on Mars. She and her partner, Cassie Holt, decided to find a binder that would allow settlers to use regolith, which is Martian soil, to create sturdy bricks. The students used a mix of global simulant MGS-1, which is a soil mix that matches the chemical and mechanical properties of regolith. And so they mixed it with different binders, including polystyrene resin, poly, or polyester resin, excuse me, polystyrene, and recycled high-density polyethylene, or HDPE. They found that the polyester resin created bricks that were extremely strong. Our Mars resin brick can withstand more pressure than concrete, she noted. Laura Ejiaga won the $10,000 STEM Talent Award, sponsored by DOD STEM, which celebrates leadership and technical ability in STEM. Her project centered around the effects of ozone depletion on plants. She created a simple setup with pansies in plastic cases with plastic pipes, pipe connectors. And so she had three experimental setups, one where UVA rays were filtered, one where UVB rays were filtered, and a control that did not have a filter at all. She found that plants receiving UVA radiation lost only about 14% of their chlorophyll compared to the control group, while those exposed to UVB lost a whopping 61% compared to the control. This suggests that UVB radiation is too strong to be protected against if not balanced out, she noted. And one of the cool things about this young lady, not that they're not all amazing, uh, is that she specifically said that she wanted to encourage other students to see that you can do science with minimal resources. You don't really need a bunch of fancy gadgets or whatever to prove what something's, that something's happening, she says. They can do it in their home, their backyard. If they want to do a topic, they can go for it, which I think is very cool.
And last but certainly not least, Alexis McAvoy designed a low-cost, eco-friendly water filter. Alexis won the $10,000 Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Award for Health Advancement for her work to make it easier to keep our water clean. Living near San Francisco Bay, where there is an effort to remove heavy metals from the water at a cost of millions of dollars, she knew that if the water had been filtered beforehand, this wouldn't have been an issue. But she noted that 80% of the industrial wastewater isn't filtered whatsoever. And so activated carbon filters are the standard for removing heavy metals. But Alexis wanted to know if she could create filters using bio-waste, such as coconut shells or sawdust. And so after testing several combinations, she found that filters created with sawdust and walnut shells, ground to a specific mesh size, and treated with sodium bicarbonate and fluoride were able to absorb up to 30 times more heavy metals than the commercially available filters. And speaking of commercials, sorry, these transitions are a bit hard. Um, I would like to once again remind you uh, that this is our fun week drive. Uh, So if you can, please do donate at valleyfreeradio.org. Every little bit helps uh, to keep the lights on and the station broadcasting. And I do actually want to make a Big shout out to those of you who have already donated uh, earlier in the week or tonight. You are amazing and awesome. And if you can't donate, that's okay. Um, Please just keep listening. Uh, That is also a service to us. And just, you know, if you have a show you like, tell your friends about it. Um, And so, yeah, let's now move on to another uh, eco-friendly innovation. Engineers have created tiny artificial sunflower stalks that bend toward the light. And so they're hoping that this would be good for use in solar panels, um, allowing them to track the sun. And so reporting in the journal Nature Nanotechnology, the engineers molded temperature-sensitive materials into thin supportive structures that create tiny stems that bend toward a bright light source. Researchers from the University of California, Los Angeles, and the Arizona State University called the new material a sunflower-like biomimetic omnidirectional tracker, or sunbot. And so chemists and engineers have had no trouble creating artificial nastic materials, materials that move in response to specific changes in the environment, um, such as morning glories that open in the morning and close at dusk. But tropic movement has been more elusive. The most common form is heliotropism, or the most common form that you've probably heard of. And so that's where plants move towards the sun. So if you have a a houseplant in the uh, window and you have left it in one particular orientation for a long time, you'll eventually find that all of the leaves have kind of pushed out uh, up and are now facing out towards the window and you have to turn the plant around if you want them to go back to being straight up and down. Um, that's, um, that is trophic movement. And so um, this has been more elusive. And so recreating the action in photovoltaics, though, would be extremely helpful in upping the efficiency of energy collection. Light coming in at a 75 degree angle to a solar panel will carry as much as 75% less energy than light coming in directly above the panel. 
This is called oblique incidence energy density loss, uh, which is what this new material is hoping to reduce. So they began with several materials, including a hydrogel containing gold nanoparticles, a tangle of light-sensitive polymers, and a type of liquid crystalline elastomer embedded with a light-absorbing dye. Each was shaped into a millimeter-wide thread several centimeters in length. When targeted by a laser, the artificial stalks responded to the light's warmth, shrinking on one side and expanding on the other to cause the thread to lean towards the laser. They tested the apparatus by taking several sunbots and emerging them in water, having them sit right at the water-air boundary. They then measured the water vapor that the array generated. The test suggested that they were up to four times more efficient at harvesting energy at steep angles than regular flat panels. And because several materials worked, they suggest this setup could be used in any technology that experiences oblique incidence energy density loss. Now, they write rather effusively, This work may be useful for enhanced solar harvesters, adaptive signal receivers, smart windows, self-contained robotics, solar sails for spaceships, guided surgery, self-regulating optical devices, and intelligent energy generation, for example, solar cells and biofuels, as well as energetic emission detection and tracking with telescopes, radars, and hydrophones. Now, that's a little bit, like I said, uh, <laughs> a little bit effusive, a little bit, um, they're getting themselves a little bit ahead of themselves. But, um, you know, if it could be used for even half of those things, it would be amazing. Um, and of course, all of that would be in the future. So we always have to remember that. But, um, you know, if even if some of these uses can come to fruition, it would help make uh, more efficient technologies that are better able to harness available energy so sources. And so that would be really great. And uh, of course, we all do need energy, don't we? <laughs> uh, and so our electricity is paid for by the kind and generous donation of listeners like you fine folks. Uh, so again, if you want to give, you can go to valleyfreeradio.org slash donate and tell them I sent you. Um, again, David Estau is, his estate is once again offering the $10 matching gift per um, unique donor and uh, the $1,000 extra bonus if we make it to 103 um, pledge, individual pledge, um, individual donors. And um, so, yeah, um, again, I just want to say a little bit about David because I think it's always important um, to kind of remember these people when the point is kind of, you know, that this is in part a memorial to him. Um, he was awesome. He was a great um, guy. He was very humble um, and wise and funny. He had a very dry sense of humor. Um, he loved cats um, and he loved new wave music. And so he always enjoyed uh, subculture when he could hear it. And um, he was just a really great guy. And I miss him. Um, every time this happens, it comes really to the forefront. Um, and, um, you know, if you can help us out, that would be great. If not, again, we just enjoy that you listen and, you know, tell a friend. Um, and so, yeah. All right. So now that we have gotten the uh, 
the emotional bit out of the way. Let's let's go to space. <laughs> um, and so we are going to talk a little bit about the Voyager 2 probe. Um, and so this time last year, NASA's Voyager 2 spacecraft passed through the heliopause and into the interstellar medium. And so on this border, galactic cosmic rays, which are high energy particles from other celestial bodies, slam into the magnetic shield created by the sun and which encompasses our solar system. And so in a series of papers published recently in Nature Astronomy, NASA researchers document new information gained from the probe, and some of it was not encountered when Voyager 1 left the system, which is really interesting. And so a team led by Edward Stone, a professor of physics at Caltech and project scientist on the Voyager program since its inception in the 1970s, found a previously unknown border just outside the heliopause. They've named this threshold a cosmic ray boundary layer. And so this is where the probe experienced a shift in the gradient of cosmic rays coming from within and without the solar system. Now, the data for Voyager 1 suggests it did indeed hit a threshold but like this, but it seems to have been inside of the heliopause rather than outside like Voyager 2. There appear to be cosmic ray boundary layers on both sides of the heliopause, with the outer one only being evident at the position of Voyager 2, Stone's team said in the study. This cosmic ray boundary layer on the outside of the heliopause was not evident at the place and time where Voyager 1 crossed it. And so part of the problem was that Voyager 1's plasma instrument initially uh, made it hard for NASA researchers the fact that it had uh, failed, sorry, uh, made it hard for the researchers to know exactly when it had crossed the heliopause. And so if it had been working, they would have noticed an immediate difference from the hot plasma of the sun to the colder, denser plasma of the interstellar medium. They actually ended up confirming that it had crossed the boundary by measurements of local electrons and magnetic fields. Now, they were lucky that Voyager 2's uh, plasma instrument was working, and it confirmed that their data had been correct for Voyager 1. Voyager 2 measured a 20-fold increase in the density of the plasma, according to one of the papers. Bill Kurth, a plasma physicist and author of one of the papers, notes that despite being 150 astronomical units apart, an AU is the average distance between the Earth and the Sun, they cross the heliopause at similar distances, uh, 121.6 AU and 119 AU, respectively. This suggests a, a homogeneity to the heliopause. Now, it's not clear why they would have encountered a difference when crossing the heliopause, the only main difference between the two probes' trajectories was that Voyager 1 was launched from the Northern Hemisphere and Voyager 2 from the Southern Hemisphere. So that's how they ended up 150 astronomical units apart, because they didn't go on the exact same trajectory. Now, there is, though, also the fact that the sun's activity has been in decline in the six years between the two passages, and this may also have caused a shift in the boundary. We had two episodes on Voyager 1 where we were connected to the outside, Stone said in a teleconference uh, this past Thursday. In that case, we saw the leakage from outside in. 
while Voyager 2 experienced the opposite. We can take another look at the data we have to try to understand what the process is by which the particles which are inside start leaking out, Stone explained in the teleconference. There appears to be a region just outside the heliopause where there's still some connection back to the inside. Now, other differences included that Voyager 2 recorded a continuous change in the direction of magnetic fields as it crossed the boundary, a measurement that was not found during Voyager 1's crossing. And so both missions recorded a sudden increase in the number of high-energy cosmic rays, but Voyager 2 continued to see lower-energy particles from the sun. So again, it seems to have been picking up um, energy coming out of the heliopause from the solar system in, the way, in a way that Voyager 1 did not. And so one of the big things here is that understanding this boundary is important for our understanding of the shape of our solar system and, determine, and to determine what other worlds might be habitable. The big thing is, is that Galactic cosmic rays are bad news <laughs> for biological life. And so to better understand how the sun's magnetic cocoon uh, protects our solar system will give us into insight into how other planets may or may not be similarly protected. There are also things about the heliopause that scientists expected to find, but so far haven't. So for instance, it should have a long tail like a comet but no evidence of that tale has yet been found. But of course, what I always liked about these stories that have to do with NASA is that it is amazing that these space probes that were built in the 70s are still out there doing science. I think that's so amazing. Um, and we're learning so much more and so many interesting things. Um, I won't have time tonight, but there's a new paper talking about uh, how someone thinks that they've found a reason for the universe to be circular. And everyone's like, that's bad news for physics. Um, and again, that's, you know, on a higher sort of more uh, theoretical level. So we'll probably talk about that next week. Um, but these kinds of things are just so cool where, we, where you have this actual physical object that we've sent out to the edge of the solar system and are able to still be getting 40 years later data from them and they still have energy left they're still going to send back some data it's getting to the point where they're you know really rationing it because they're getting to the end of life but I just think it's so amazing to be able to share in that experience, to be able to read about that data coming from these probes that have been out going far, far out into the outer reaches in a way that like, it's hard to even understand like the edge of the solar system. Um, and so, yeah. I think that's a really cool uh, thing to think about and a good way to end because uh, I am out of time for tonight. So uh, thank you for listening and I will be back next week. Good night. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.